Welcome to this talk from Emmaus Road, a church with congregations in Guildford, Woking and Aldershot in the UK. To find out more about who we are and what we're up to, please visit us online at EmmausRoad.com. So this is Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 to 20. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kit. Good morning. I tell you, speaking in Woking and Guildford, which both start at 10.30, is not for the faint of heart. We might need to think about the sort of moral implications of being loose with the highway code whilst on your way to preach. Um, those of you who were here last week, I think you'll agree with me in saying Adam did the most sensational job of kicking the series off. In fact, he did such a good job that he caused Isway to have a rare moment of uh, discouragement, inadvertent discouragement. Isway walked up to me after the service and he was like, that was so good. I would not like to be the person speaking next week. <laughs> Thanks, Isway. But last week we learned that this book, Revelation, tells us what it is about in its opening phrase. Apocalypsis Jesu Christi, the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. So any study of Revelation, any sermon on Revelation that does not focus on Jesus Christ is misguided or at least has gone slightly off the path. This book is the apocalypse of Jesus Christ. And we also learned, and this is important to keep at the forefront of our minds, that the word apocalypse, which has so successfully been sort of hijacked through the centuries by the human imagination to induce fear and dread and uh, images of the end of the world, does not mean that at all in this context. An apocalypse is an unveiling. It's a revealing. And it's a revealing from a divine perspective. You could say an apocalypse gives us a heavenly perspective on an earthly situation. It corrects our vision, and who knows that we sometimes need our vision to be corrected. Should I swap mic? I'll just do that now. Thanks, Pete. Thanks. It corrects our vision. Sort of ruined the flu there a little bit, didn't it? So I got a new pair of glasses in the summer, went to the optician for the first time in many years, 
And uh, I don't know any of the terminology, so apologies if you are an optician here today. But you know, you sit down in the chair and they put this sort of machine in front of you and they, they gradually put different sort of strength of lens in front of you. And you've got you know, numbers and letters. And I think when I did it, there was even a couple of pictures and colors and images and shapes and all of this stuff. And until they put the right lens in front of you, it's blurry, right? It doesn't make sense. You do your best. You maybe get a few of the letters, but you can't quite see what's really going on. And then suddenly, the right one snaps down, and you know it instantly, don't you? You go, oh, yeah, great. I can, I can suddenly see. And so if it's helpful today, I wonder if you could hold that kind of image before you. Imagine you're in the optician's chair today, and as we work through this passage together, it's like the prescription is getting closer and closer until this moment comes where we feel like we can see properly what is in front of us. It's almost like Jesus is handing you a pair of glasses today saying, put these on, see me as I really am, get your perspective fixed. And so this depiction, the first of uh, Jesus in the book of Revelation, there are seven depictions of Jesus in Revelation, not an insignificant number. In one of them, uh, it's even said that he, he appears like a, a, a lamb that has been killed with seven horns and seven eyes, sending out the seven spirits of God. This number seven keeps coming up. And this is a, this is a little bonus side note. I didn't have time to do this in booking. But people get really caught up on the whole 666 thing, right? It's like Voldemort, you're not supposed to say it. And for all the you know, many interesting interpretations, what is 666? It's not 777. It never can be. If you type two-thirds into a calculator, it just keeps going six, 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 six. It will never be seven, the number of completion and wholeness. And Jesus is continually identified with the number seven in the book of Revelation. That itself is one of the main messages of the book. Anyway, so this revealing of Jesus um, that we're dealing with today, it happens through the use of really vivid imagery. And as you go deeper into Revelation, you sometimes get vivid and even like grotesque imagery at times, which again has led to all kinds of really unhelpful and interesting misinterpretations. But we are all familiar with this kind of language. We don't even think about it. If I say to you, she's got her head in the clouds, you know what I mean? You don't have to analyze, you don't have to go, oh, what is it? You know what I mean? It's, it's one of our sort of cultural idioms. If I say, oh, you're flogging a dead horse, apologies if you've recently lost an equine beast and that was triggering. <laughs> The, the Bible itself uses this kind of language all the time, like the Lord is my shepherd. Is God literally tending sheep in a field? The thief in the night, right? These kind of like phrases that they, they communicate something to us. No, it's important to say they're not maybe telling us what's literally going on, but that doesn't mean they're not true. They're communicating a different kind of truth to us, one that we desperately need. And we are all... Uh, products of the day and age that we live in, right? Just as John of Patmos was a product of the first century. If I say to you, Martin Luther King Jr., you know who I'm talking about, right? But if I say the Emperor Nero to you, you may not know who I'm talking about because you're not a product of the first century when everybody would have known who he was. And so I started to feel a little bit frustrated as I was looking at these images because I, I felt like no matter what we do, we can't like feel this depiction of Jesus as immediately as the first hearers of John's vision would have done. Like when he said this stuff, when it tripped off his tongue, they would have just, in their imaginations would have been firing because they would have understood the meaning and the symbology that was going on. And we have to do a bit of work. But I felt challenged that if we do that work and we do it carefully and prayerfully, we can 
get this vision of Jesus that he wants us to see. And Revelation, I think Adam said this last week, Revelation is the only book in the Bible that gives us such a strong uh, depiction of Jesus as he really is right now. It's very important that we pay attention to it. So I'm going to work through the passage. I'm going to do this quite quickly because I, don't, I almost don't want to get caught on any one thing. The point is to try and like build up this cascade of these images and each one might feel like a lens that's getting a little bit closer and hopefully by the end we will feel like we see him clearly. Are you ready? Okay, let's do it. The first thing that we are told is that this person is among the lampstands. Now we're told in verse 20, just a little bit later, what these lampstands represent. They represent the churches that, you know, the ones that are on John's heart, the seven churches, which subsequently we will read seven letters to these churches. So on one level, it's just, you know, could be Jesus is among his churches. He's not above looking down. He's not outside looking in. He's not sending in his commands remotely in a disinterested way. He is present with his earthly congregations. Now, you may not need me to tell you this, but the church is not perfect church has never been perfect, and in fact, it's had some really terrible moments throughout its existence. But the message here is this. Jesus is not embarrassed or compromised by his association with the church, his bride. And in fact, he is the you know, pre-existent Lord of the cosmos, but he chooses to be received in the everyday normality of the church. He is among the lampstands. John says he saw someone like a son of man. This is a really key biblical reference. Listen to these verses in Daniel 7. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. The Son of Man was an extremely powerful image in the Jewish imagination. This was really the central figure in all of history, the one who would be able to restore humanity to its former splendor, like take us back to Adam in the garden to be true image bearers of God once again. And the incongruity of like Jesus as he's depicted in the Gospels as this wandering sort of rabbi around the countryside, teaching from the scriptures and saying all kinds of esoteric things with this image of the Son of Man. Like it's the, it was the most glorious title that someone could take for themselves. And Jesus is going around saying, I'm the Son of Man. It's hard for us to understand actually what a contradiction that would have been to the people who were around at the time. The most glorious of titles in the most menial of lifestyles. He talked like a king and he acted like a slave. You could say he was God and man. John now talks about his clothing. He says this figure was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. This is another really clear allusion to the Old Testament. In Exodus 28, they're commanded to make for Aaron, the great high priest, garments just like the ones described here. The Son of Man is being communicated to us here as the great high priest. Now, we have an understanding of what a priest is in our day and age. But let me take you back to what maybe these first hearers would have thought of. 
The Latin word for a priest is pontifex, which means a bridge builder. It's the literal meaning of, of what a priest was, a bridge builder, someone who bridges the gap between the divine and this world. And to be a good bridge builder, you need to know both sides of the chasm that you're trying to span. And again, we come back to this idea like this is God and man. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. This is the first of seven physical features, um, aside from the clothes and the, the, the titles we've already looked at. These are the, we're moving into like the physical features of the body now. The hair in his head was white like wool. White hair is actually used in the description of the ancient, ancient of Days, just a few verses previously from that passage I read in Daniel. Now, the Ancient of Days is God, Yahweh. The Ancient of Days was described as having hair white as wool like this. And again, we're seeing this conflation of Jesus with God. Now, it's not particularly revolutionary for us to say that Jesus is God. We've established that in Christianity by this point. But again, this, is, this was so impactful to these first hearers. Like to say that Jesus is God was everything. It changed absolutely everything. It's important for us to hold on to that. I think another importance of the white hair is that it symbolizes purity. Jesus is being shown here as the only pure one, the truly pure one. And when I read the, the phrase when I was looking at this this week, white as snow, it made me think of Psalm 51, where it says, you know, create in me a clean heart, O God, restore to me the joy of your salvation, wash me so that I might be white as snow. This is the cry of the human heart that knows it is compromised by sin and evil. We, we desire this kind of purity, but we just cannot get it ourselves. And Jesus here is, is being shown as purity itself. And those of us who follow him get to share in that purity. He bestows it upon us. His eyes were like blazing fire. He who is pure is also the purifier. Fire conjures up all kinds of biblical imagery for us. Think of the pillar of fire that guided the people of God through the desert. Think of the burning bush where God first revealed his personal name to Moses. Think of the symbology of the uh, altar fires in the Old Testament and all that they represent. Think even of the fiery furnace in Daniel where God demonstrated his presence and his strength before King Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest, you know, most powerful human in the world at that time. God protected Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in that fire. He, he used it as a demonstration of his power. This imagery of the fiery eyes tells us that the Son of Man doesn't just look at us. He looks into us. And if we yield to him, he will burn away everything that does not conform to him. Does it feel like the, the prescription's getting a little bit closer? Are you starting to see him more clearly? His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. We're already very conscious of the book of Daniel at this point, and I think this is another allusion to that. In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, what does he see? A statue, right, made of many magnificent metals, but we're told that the base of the statue, the feet were made of a mixture of iron and clay. And the clay is soft, and so the statue topples and is destroyed. It becomes utterly worthless, this magnificent statue. And I think this just tells us what we already know, that the kingdoms of man, the earthly kingdoms, are always built on shaky foundations. 
no matter how magnificent they might appear in the moment, no matter how long-lasting they may seem, they will one day fall. It would have been impossible for these first hearers to imagine a world where the Roman Empire was not dominant in every possible way. And <laughs> with hindsight, we can see that that was not the case. Now, what's the other importance, I think, of bronze? Well, bronze is a mixture of iron and copper. Iron is strong, but it can rust. Copper doesn't rust, but it's pliable. If you mix the two together and you get bronze, the best quality of each is preserved. And I think there's significance even in this. It's telling us the kingdom of the Son of Man is built on sure foundations that will not decay. You can trust it. His voice was like the sound of rushing waters. When I read this, I thought of Niagara Falls. Now, I had to look this up, but Niagara Falls, in terms of volume, if you're there, is about 95 decibels. That's how volume is measured. And 95 dB, um, if you're in that kind of volume, can cause hearing damage after a certain amount of exposure. So it's very loud. Now, we're used to all kinds of really loud noises in the 21st century. Think of a jet engine or a motorbike or a Foo Fighters concert. Those things didn't exist back in 96 AD. The sounds in nature would have been the loudest kind of sounds. So think of thunder, of a lion roaring, and certainly of water. Even this morning in, in Ho Valley and Woking, like the sound of the rain on the building was really significant. This was one of the loudest sounds they could have imagined. When the Son of Man speaks, it is like a roaring lion. All else falls silent. You can't hear anything else but this voice. And we're not told at this point the content of the words, this is just a description of the, the kind of voice that it is. Now, this imagery has already led us to, to, to seeing Jesus as God. And what did God's voice do? What did it speak into being? Everything, right? All of creation. Think of the disciples in the gospel as well. One of my favorite kind of phrases in all scripture. Who is this that even the wind and waves obey him? In his right hand, he held seven stars. Now, again, we're told a little bit later that the stars represent the angels of the seven churches. And so in one sense, it's just, you know, showing Jesus to be um, the one who sends them, who, who holds them in his hand. But again, a little bit of historical context can really help us here. Astrology was a big deal. Uh, still is, I guess, in many ways, but certainly throughout human history, in almost every culture and in all of the major religions throughout human history, Astrology has played a really key role. Astrologists would have often been seen as very important, influential people in society. And the movement of the stars and the planets would have influenced public and private affairs. Everybody would have been very conscious of astrology. And in the first century, we know a lot more about space now, but they only knew of seven planets, seven fixed stars. And I think, again, the symbolism here is very clear. Jesus holds the whole cosmos in his right hand. And again, I think this is an illusion that these first hearers would have understood when they thought of the seven stars. Your right hand, what's the significance of that? Well, a right hand indicates your capability. Think of a surgeon with a scalpel. Think of a violinist holding a bow. It shows what you're able and ready to do. And what is the message here? Christ controls the cosmos. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. Scripture is full of military action. 
But gradually and in Jesus, finally, it becomes a metaphor. The sword becomes a metaphor for the word of God. What did Jesus say to Peter on the night of his arrest when he, when he drew his sword to protect Jesus? Put away your sword. Put it away. Those who live by the sword die by it. Jesus is not coming with a real sword. He's coming with the word. But a sword is a really good analogy for the word of God because a sword cuts through things. It pierces things. It separates good from evil. It pushes back darkness when used well. The power that the world acknowledges comes from the mouth of a gun. But the power that we must acknowledge as those who follow the Son of Man is the kind that comes from his mouth, the word of God. Are we okay? Are we hanging in there? His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. We live so much of our lives in darkness, right? Think of the, just the great spiritual darkness that so many people exist in. When I read this, I think of the ironic blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, to be gracious to you, to give you peace. This is the Son of Man. Now, darkness distorts reality. When you're in the darkness, you lose your sense of space and time. The tiniest noises, and my wife, this is certainly the case here, the tiniest noises make your imagination go wild. But what happens when you switch one light on? Perspective is restored. Suddenly you see things as they really are. You discover what the very innocent noise probably was. All it takes is one light to switch on, and we're told here, this is the Son of Man. He is light in our darkness. Those of us who follow him need never live in this darkness again. Are you starting to see him? Interestingly, John's given us seven physical features about the Son of Man. There's that number again. It's almost like it's intentional. It is. And what's at the center of the seven? It's the voice. Voice is the dominant image of this text. It starts with John saying, I turn to see the voice that was behind me. And then in the middle, right in the middle of this description of Jesus, it's his voice that we're led to. And then how does this passage culminate? With this voice speaking. And what does this voice say? What's the first thing out of the son of man's mouth? Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys of death and Hades. I walked willingly into the jaws of the greatest enemy that there is. I let death take me captive. And then I walked out of the prison holding the prison keys. Do not fear the Nero's and Domitian's of history. For even if they put you in the prison of death, I'm the one who holds the keys. Do not be afraid. Look is the other command we're given. Do not be afraid and look 
see me, see what I have done. This vision of Jesus in Revelation 1 shows us who he really is. The center of all reality. Lord of the cosmos. Master of molecules. The living one who holds the keys of death. The awesome son of man who looks each of us in the face, puts his right hand on us and says, do not be afraid. Look, are your eyes clear enough to see him? Do you believe this about him? I wonder if the band could join me. The truth is, it's hard to keep the reality of Jesus before us when it feels like the world is falling apart. We're so prone to distraction, to sin, to wandering. We, uh, we take our glasses off. We forget where we put them. We stumble around looking for that elusive peace or joy or hope or love that we so desperately need. We keep putting our hope in the wrong places. We keep putting it in these earthly kingdoms that are built on shaky foundations. The name of this series is Stranger Times. And yes, there's obviously a wordplay there with stranger things. But really, we picked it on purpose. Like these are strange times that we are living in. The death of Queen Elizabeth, the end of an era. Significant in many ways. A government that is quite literally in tatters at the moment, about to have our third prime minister in as many months, still working out what a post-pandemic world looks like for each of us and as a society, the existential threat of war, an economic crisis that will be affecting all of us in different ways. These are really, really unusual times that we are living in. And yet, Jesus is coming today and handing us a pair of glasses saying, look, put these on. See me as I really am. Do not be afraid. Will you put the glasses on? Will you take them and put them on? Will you see him as he really is? He's saying, do you believe these things about me? Love us to stand together.